May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. As people who spend any time at St. Benedict's table will know, one of the key influences on my thought and indeed on my life has been the theologian and writer Robert Ferrer Capon. This past Thursday at the age of 88, Robert died. And although I haven't actually seen him for almost a decade, I am particularly aware of the influence on my life and on my theological vision. I learned a lot in seminary about scriptural study, theological studies, pastoral work. But somehow the audacious proclamation of grace that Robert embodied in his life and his work brought it all home. And so tonight, I suppose I just want to acknowledge my debt to him and my sadness for his wife at his passing. But he taught me well that all we have to do is die. The death is in fact the engine of grace and that nothing separates us from the love of the one whom he served. Now, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. As the New Testament scholar Emerson Powery rather dryly observed, this material is tough to preach. It's tough to preach in our society, a setting in which family values take center stage in our political and rhetorical discourse. And what follower of Jesus doesn't love his or her family? I mean, seriously, all of this talk about hating, hating father, mother, spouse, children, siblings, even life itself, do we really need this in church of all places? Come on, preacher, explain it away for us. Make it more palatable. See if you can't get Jesus to say something we all really want to hear. Now, Bishop N.T. Wright acknowledges that it is tempting to give this passage what he calls, quote, the salt water treatment. First you water it down, then you take it with a pinch of salt. Frankly, though, that's just not very honest. You see, Jesus is saying something here that the large crowds traveling with him clearly needed to hear. And that specific context is part of what we need to keep in view. But this passage is also part of our own sacred scripture. So it's meant to speak not only to that audience of 2,000 years ago, but also to every reader and every community that's placed itself under gospel authority since. It is meant to speak to us in some way, even if we'd rather it didn't. So, when Jesus uses this hard language of hating, when he speaks of the need to take up and carry the cross and to give up all of our possessions, what might he be saying to the large crowds that were traveling with him at that point? 
In his commentary, Powery wonders if Jesus' intention might be to, quote, turn away half-hearted potential followers, the ones who jumped on what looked like a promising bandwagon. After all, this is a growing movement led by a gifted teacher and healer, and it was headed toward Jerusalem, caught up in their enthusiasm over the possibility of a liberation from the Roman Empire and a new beginning for Israel, maybe this all looked irresistible and easy. But no, no, you're going to need to count the cost, he says to them. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? Don't even think that there's an easy bandwagon on which to jump, because there's not. Jesus is speaking to a crowd operating according to a a set of working assumptions. He's speaking to a crowd with an imagination shaped by its own religious and cultural context. That should come as no surprise. We all come with our particular assumptions and a kind of contextual imagination. We think within our world, in other words. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This Jesus... That's where he's going? Speculation is he might be Messiah. Speculation is he might be a new son of David. Speculation is, and they're all so sure they know how that will play out, the restoration of Israel. That's the promise. But here Jesus slams hard against some of what the Judaism of his own day, what made it what it was. Family, for instance. As is true of many traditional cultures, familial solidarity and loyalty was a cornerstone of Jewish life and culture. And why not? Honor your father and mother, says the fifth commandment. And think of all those stories in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament that trace blood lineage and family bonds so carefully. And think how often it is that when something in those stories goes badly wrong, it's because those family bonds have been violated or debased. And when that commandment calls for the honoring of father and mother, what does it say is the outcome of that? Your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's what Exodus says. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And that actually touches on another part of the crowd's collective identity, on its default settings. Land. It's one of the most important possessions, the defining possession, in fact, for individuals, for families, and for the whole nation that was Israel. It is land that gives to Israel its place and its identity. None of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions, he says to them. And that would most clearly include land. 
Cut your ties. Leave it behind. Not provisionally or just for now or for a little while. Set it aside and follow me. Jesus' vision, you see, is for something much bigger than can be carried through family blood ties or through land. You know that old line that blood is thicker than water? In a real sense, Jesus subverts it. And he claims that water is thicker than blood. The living water that he himself is and the waters of baptism through which his people pass make for a new family in which bloodlines, including those bloodlines that formerly excluded the Gentiles, those bloodlines are declared meaningless. Water is thicker than blood. And as for land, it's clear that in the end, it is the whole of the world, the whole of the created order that Jesus has in view, not simply the land that was once the political state of Israel. And when he speaks about a willingness to carry the cross and follow, he's not speaking metaphorically, not to them. For generations after his life and death, those seekers who came to explore the Christian faith and to offer themselves for that water baptism knew that it could cost them their lives, knew it could land them up on a cross. Some still know that today, of course, not here, not in our country and our context. Yet it is the case in many, many places in our world that to seek Christian baptism is worth your life. And we do well to understand, to remember, that it was only 50 years ago, 50 years ago on this continent, that black churches in the southern United States were bombed and that black Christians were attacked for simply claiming their identity as fully equal members in the body of Christ. Similarly, when the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was faced with the scourge of Nazism in his own country, and when he witnessed how the church was, by and large, co-opted by that movement, either rendered mute and impotent, or actually drawn in to become a voice of church fascism, Bonhoeffer found himself in a position of having to risk everything for the sake of a deeper truth. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer wrote that, quote, we must face up to the truth that the call of Christ does set up a barrier between man and his natural life, between humanity and the things that they're naturally drawn to. It would have been much easier for Bonhoeffer to remain silent or to accept a position within that co-opted and officially sanctioned German church. To do that would have left his family intact. It would have left his professional life secure. He would have succeeded. Tempting, I'm sure, but... The call of Christ does set up a barrier that Bonhoeffer and others with him refused to ignore. And so he renounced that security. He left it all behind to risk and ultimately to lose everything. Now, I'm thankful that the context in which I have lived 
has never faced me with such things. I have not had my family shattered on account of my faith. In fact, my family, parents and siblings and wife and children have supported me in who and what I am and do. Frankly, the cross that I carry is a metaphorical one. In theory, I am prepared to die for my faith, but the theory has never been tested. That's true for most of us who have been fortunate enough to be born into this time and this culture. It's theoretical. It's not yet been tested. Maybe the jarring character of Jesus' words are meant to wake us up to that reality to have us recall that for other members of this one body of Christ, and there is only one body of Christ, for others in it, our brothers and sisters, this has not been so. They have been crucified for who and what they are. What most of us wrestle with in theory, others face in reality. And so we ask, were I in that position, would I count the cost? and still risk it all? Back for just a minute to the witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sentenced to death for his resistance to the Nazi regime, his last recorded words before his execution were, This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. This is the end, for me, the beginning of life. With that simple sentence, Bonhoeffer unveiled what is truly at stake in these hard words of Jesus, that though the cost may be so very high, in the end, it is the one thing that matters, and always it is but the beginning of life. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.